good to be back in the pulpit. It's good to be focusing back on this idea of the covenant that we have as a church. I'm thankful over the past four weeks that I was able to be out of the pulpit. I'm thankful for the men who filled it. I'm thankful for the church who listened to them. Uh, We're not going to give them a round of applause, but they did a great job. They did a fantastic job of opening God's word and expositing, digging out for us what God has said in his word and how we are to apply it to our lives. And I'm so thankful that we've got brothers that are able and willing to do that. This morning, we are entering into our sixth bullet point of the church covenant. We talk about this idea of church covenant. You might be saying, well, this is my first time here this morning, or maybe I've missed the definition. I want to put it up on the screen for you. Church covenant is simply this. A local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. It's a local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. Members of Hagerstown Church, we have made a promise to each other before God based on his word We've been taking the time to slowly work through these promises. This morning, the promise that we'll be looking at specifically, the portion of the covenant, it's the sixth bullet point. If you want to open the black Bible in front of you, if you turn to the back, there should be a copy of the the church covenant in there for you to take a look. If you're tech savvy, you can go on our website and under what we believe at the bottom of the page, you can click a link there. It'll take you to a PDF. But here's the idea that we're looking at this morning. Here's the portion of the covenant We will rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burden and sorrows. I'm going to read that again. We will rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. And so this morning... We're going to be reviewing this idea that we have committed, yea, we've been commanded to rejoice with each other and to bear each other's burdens. Really, it's exactly what we see taking place in the book of Acts. If you would, turn with me to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'll turn there as well. And those of you who are following along in the Black Bible, I'll tell you what page we're on. That would leave us, if you're in the Black Pew Bible in front of you, to uh, page 1,082. Page 1,082. Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 42 following to the end of the chapter. I'll give you a moment to turn there yourself. By the way, I, I don't know if I introduced myself. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it really is a joy to be opening God's word with you this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what the word of God says. And they, speaking of the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And listen, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. 
Let's ask him to bless it. Father, we pause again to invoke your name, ask you to work without you, without your spirit, working in the preaching of your word this morning, we're without hope. So we need you to illumine this for us this morning. We need you to, to change our hearts and to encourage us this morning. And Father, we turn to you now. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you really understand what's taking place in the, in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, it's, it's an incredible story. It's unique to its time, really, before any point in time up until this time. People from all walks of life were joining together in a type of fellowship that crossed all the stereotypical societal boundaries. And seemingly out of nowhere, a strange and beautiful unity was realized. The early church was born as an astonishingly unified church. And we read about it right here. It really is idyllic. They're selling what they have and, and handing out to those who were in need. And, and they even know what the person next to them had as far as needs. And they were celebrating together and with generous and glad hearts, just eating together and, and going into the temple and, and saying hallelujah together in unison. It was really a beautiful, incredible time. Our brother Jason spoke to this a few weeks ago. Society didn't create the unity that the church was enjoying at this particular time. The church didn't generate it. It was too weak in and of itself. This unity, this joyful time, this bear, uh, bearing of burdens was given to them by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of the Spirit's working in the church, they naturally rejoiced with each other. They naturally rejoiced with each other. They naturally bore each other's burdens. The Scriptures tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature. And so in history, we look back and we see tribes and races fighting one against the other, little unity between the races and the groups. And here in the church, we see rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all coming together, making much of Jesus, bearing each other's burdens and rejoicing together. This is the beauty of the church given to them by the Holy Spirit. Rejoicing and bearing. This morning as we consider this promise, I'm going to encourage you to take three uh, steps with me or walk through three different portions of our time. Each of them marked with a question. The first question that we're going to look at this morning is, what are we talking about? Rejoicing and bearing. Unity in the Spirit. What is this? What are we talking about? We'll look at some passages that instruct the believer to bear the burdens of others and to rejoice with each other. That's the first section. And we'll leave this definition of what we're actually talking about and we'll look at some examples of what we see in Scripture of this very thing taking a place. In addition to Acts chapter 2, we'll look at another passage. We'll answer this question, what does it actually look like to bear each other's burdens and to rejoice one with the other? And the last question that we'll ask, why can it be so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to do this thing that we've promised that we'll do. We'll, look at, we'll address some of those issues that get in the way of the command that we see this morning. 
But before we get into that, let's start with the first one. The first question, what are we talking about this morning? This section will be marked by us looking at two different passages of Scripture. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 specifically, and then Romans chapter 12, verse 15. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. I would encourage you, even though it'll be on the screen, if you've got a copy, grab that. We're going to be looking at a couple texts uh, there in the roundabout area. And so I want to make sure that you see what we're talking about this morning. Again, that will be on uh, in your black Bible in front of you on page 1158. Galatians chapter 2, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. As the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens these words, he has some things in mind. There's a context that he's writing into. You see, the gospel was under attack in Galatia. The gospel was under attack. We see a gospel issue manifesting itself in a cultural way. Practically speaking, non-Jewish believers or Gentiles were being required to jump through a series of, of hoops so that they could be included in the church. In essence, according to the Judaizers, who were the, the, the culprits here, you had to convert to Judaism first and then second to Christianity. And so for us, most of us here today who are not cultural Jews, religious Jews, we would have to convert to, to, to Judaism first Abide by all the, the laws first, and then we would be able to then convert to Christianity or to become Christians. And Paul hears of this, and this is the main reason why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes the book, this, this letter to the church at Galatia. In the preceding chapter of chapter 6, where we read, Bear one another's burdens, we see in verse 1, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul comes right out and says, There is no benefit to you, Gentile, to submitting yourself again to the law in order to receive grace from God. They're no longer to work to receive salvation. Instead, Jesus has secured salvation for his children. We're not slaves to the law any longer. We are free in Christ and Jesus sets us free now to do what? To serve others. If you keep looking through and just glancing through chapter 5 there in Galatians, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, For freedom you were called, brothers, <clears throat> only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the thought goes like this, Christian, you are free from the crushing weight of the law. It's no longer your master. Now Jesus is your master and you are to use the freedom, this new freedom that he has given to you, not to serve your own flesh, but to humbly and lovingly serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the argument that Jesus or that Paul is making for us this morning. For the Christian, Jesus has freed you from the curse of the law. And now that you're led by the Spirit, as you're led by the Spirit, we are to love each other and to serve each other as He, Jesus, our Lord, has served us and as He has loved us. 
And that's why we read in Galatians chapter 5, or chapter 6 rather, verses 1 through 5, this practical application of what that would look like. Brothers and sisters who are free from the law, now able to serve each other and not themselves. And so look at chapter 6 now. We'll read the first few verses here. Brothers, therefore, right, that brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What we have painted for us in this first little bit of this chapter is a word picture. And it's a picture of Christians running from sin. And sadly, this one man in particular, he's unable to outrun sin. He's overtaken by sin. He's taken captive by sin. The rest of us who are also running from sin are then asked, how are we to respond to this brother who has been overtaken in a sin? How are we to respond to him? Well, we might treat him as a reject, As someone who is unfit to be running the race that we Christians are running, we might ostracize him. We might also point to him as a bad example and avoid him at all costs. We might think that that's what we're to do. Maybe even in our human nature, that's how we think we should respond. But instead, we're we're reading here that we are to attempt to restore him. And that word restore, It's the same word that's used outside of the Bible in this certain period of time as a physician setting a bone that's been broken, coming alongside as a splint, reapplying the bones where they were broken, putting them back together, doing what's possible to mend the body. In the New Testament elsewhere, that same Greek word is used to mend fishing nets. The picture is vivid. The net's been used to catch fish. And oftentimes, as you know, you fishermen, you you use the equipment to catch a fish, but sometimes you catch a boot. Sometimes you catch a a pocket of barnacles or or shells and oysters together and they cut the net. Maybe it's snagged and it's torn. And so at the end of the day, you bring healing, in a sense, to that net. You mend that net just as you would a bone. You tie them back together. At least you try to. One strand is loosened. It's severed from, severed from the others. And that could happen, by the way, to any part of the net. Any portion of the net could be strayed or, or frayed. And so the rest of the net is then to work to reestablish the strength of the net. To bring that one stray strand back into unison with the rest. This is an example of the instructions that we read in verse One, we see in verse two, what's the instruction? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The scriptures say that we are to bear each other's burdens. When we see a brother or a sister overtaken in a sin, running from sin themselves and stumbling and being overtaken in it, what are we to do? We are to attempt to restore them. And in that way, we bear their burdens. And fulfill the law of Christ. The Holy Spirit wants us to see that we have been set free in Jesus for what purpose? To what end? To run freely in isolation by ourselves? No, to bear each other's burdens. And so 
fulfill the new law given us by Jesus himself. We're no longer under the law which commands us to be circumcised. We are now under the new law which says in John 13, verses 34 and 35, by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I, Jesus, have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So there's so much being said there in the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatian church. I think really for this, for our purposes this morning, as we consider Galatians chapter six, verse two, let me offer you this. Jesus has set us free so that we could serve him by serving others. He has set us free so that we can love him by loving others. This is the idea. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the first text that we're looking at this morning. And we went through it briefly. And there's so much more that we could unpack. But for the sake of argument and time, let's, let's move on to the next one. Romans chapter 12. Turn with me there. Romans chapter 12. You'll find that on page 1126 in the black hymnal in front of you. Romans chapter 12. It's been said that the book of Romans can be divided into four sections. So if you're taking notes, you could jot this down quickly. Four sections, won't be on the screen. The first one is righteousness needed. Righteousness needed. That's chapters one, basically to three, uh, chapter three, verse 20. Righteousness needed. And there from uh, Romans chapter three, verse 21, all the way to chapter eight, verse 39, we see righteousness provided. So we need righteousness. That's the argument that the book of Romans is making from chapters one to three. But then righteousness provided is three to eight. Then you have righteousness vindicated, which is where we'll be the, or right before we'll, uh, that's the section right before we'll be this morning, sorry. That's chapters nine to 11, basically. Nine, 10, and 11. Righteousness vindicated, defended, explained. And then we'll see in the closing of the chapter, Chapter 12 on to 15, really, righteousness practiced. Righteousness practiced. That's where we're at this morning, this section of righteousness being practiced. By the time we get to chapter 12, though, we've, we've come to understand that our great need before a holy God has been lovingly paid for by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus has satisfied all the righteous demands of the law on behalf of his church, and by the way, the church are, is those who have turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. The church is not a building. We're not in a church. We're in a building. We are the church, those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, the Son of God. We learn, and up, from, up until Romans chapter 12, we learn about that righteousness that we needed, that Jesus provided for us. And then we see... Now, as a result of this truth of righteousness needed, righteousness provided, righteousness explained or vindicated, now we come to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which explains to us, now, how are we, the church, to live this righteous life? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there on page 1126 in the black book, this is what the scriptures say. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Many of you have read this probably dozens and dozens of times. Some of you probably have this memorized. One of the benefits of being able to peer past the the English language into the original language is it, it, it just really helps to color this for you. I want to read Romans 12, 1, or 12, 1 and 2 again. And if you write in your Bible or if you're willing to write in your Bible, you don't have to write in the black one in front of you if you're borrowing it. But do, do write in your own personal one. I want you to highlight some things. I want you to see something that I can see because of some tools that I have. I want to help you to see those things. It has to do with singular and plural. Singular and plural. There are some nouns, some pronouns in these two verses that are singular. And there are some that are plural. And so I want you to just walk through here. I'm going to tell you which ones. You can just put a a, a plural, a P-L over top of a few of these words. The first one is, I appeal to you. Put a P-L over you. That's plural. If you don't want to write in, if your margins are too, or if uh, if your print's too small, you could maybe just put two lines under you. Just double underline you. And when we talk about the singular, you can just put one line underneath of it. But I appeal to you. That's plural. Therefore, brothers. Brothers is plural. Plural, meaning more than one. By the mercies of God to present your bodies, both your bodies, both of those words, your and bodies are plural. So either two underlines underneath that or a PL over both of them. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, that's plural, Spiritual worship, by the way, is singular. And so put one line under spiritual worship, or over top of that, put S-I-N. Actually, I missed one too. If you back up, your bodies as a living sacrifice, sacrifice is singular. And so put one line under that, or S-I-N, over top of sacrifice. And so sacrifice is singular, which is your, your is plural, spiritual worship is singular. You say, what are we talking about? What, this is... We're getting, we're getting somewhere. Follow me. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world. It's, the, the pronoun or the subject is actually not present there. It's, it's, it's up inside the verb there, or, and, 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 but it's, it's plural. And so you could put there, do not be, that's plural. It's an addressing to, you are, you are not to be. You could put a you. You do not be, that you is plural. Don't be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you also, again, is inside of be transformed. And it's addressing a plurality, a group of people, a church at Rome. You be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is interesting. Your mind, singular. That by the testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What I'm trying to help you see, what I can see here this morning is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after making his exposition of what righteousness truly is, he's saying, I appeal to the church collective 
to you, plural, brothers and sisters, that the collective nature of your bodies, all of them, be offered as one sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, all of you's, spiritual worship, singular. That together the church, the church in Rome, the church in Hagerstown, Hagerstown Church, together we, brothers and sisters, are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, singular. And it is to be a singular act of spiritual worship. How's that going to happen? We're not going to be conformed to the, to the, to the thoughts and, 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 and theories of this world, but we're to be transformed. We together are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Which, is in the, which gives the idea of the, the society norms, the culture. All of these are to be offered to God as a singular act. Maybe you don't notice the emphasis. Maybe you're not still con- convinced. Look at verses four and five of that same chapter. We're to act as one body, serving the Lord Jesus in unity, That's part of the idea here that Paul is getting across to us. Verse four, he says, for as in one body, we have many members and individually members of one another. Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 21, he goes on to give practical examples of what it looks like for us to be one body making one sacrifice to God and one spiritual act of service. I want to zoom into one particular verse. That's verse 15. That's why we've turned to this passage anyway. This is the text, verse 15 of chapter 12, that really undergirds this promise that we've made each other, the portion of the covenant that we're addressing this morning. And it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There are parts of the book of Romans that are Incredibly difficult for even the most seasoned theologian to understand. And this is not one of them. This is not one of them. It doesn't matter how old you are this morning. It makes sense to you that when the hammer comes down and smashes that index finger and your thumb, the right hand does not celebrate as the left hand winces in pain. Now the opposite is true. Though the pain is here, it's felt everywhere. And the entire body comes around and gives its attention and mourns and grieves and in a sense bears the burden together. And so whether you're five years old this morning or 85, we understand that we together as one body, all receiving the same righteousness of Christ, part of the body of Christ, when one part rejoices, we all rejoice. When one bears a burden, we all bear that burden. Even our bodies in their fallen nature know to do this. How much more should the church of Christ bear the burdens of each other and mourn with those who mourn and and rejoice with those who rejoice? Here's the idea I, I think that we can really draw out of this text. And that one particular verse is this. In Christ, the church is one body, thinking, acting, and feeling as one. In Christ, the church is one body, thinking, acting, and feeling as one. And that's really the background to the argument that I want to make this morning. 
I posit before you that for Christians, it really is natural for us to do this. It's natural for us to bear the burdens of others. It's natural for us to rejoice with those who do rejoice. We grieve when others are grieving. We are new creatures in Christ. This has become our new nature. It's natural for us now. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that the scriptures teach that? I hope that you do. But moving on past that, that would be enough. But I even want to just argue from an experiential perspective. I would think that each of us, as we consider our own life, have found ourselves automatically hugging a church member, a brother and sister, praying with them and weeping with them as they struggle through some difficult time. And I would, I would wager that you did not feel forced that there's been times in your life, even the most isolated and reserved in this body would say there are times when I naturally just felt that I should love and care for this brother or sister without being forced. Maybe you felt naturally the impulse to celebrate with someone over a thing that did not benefit you. Maybe you weren't invited to the wedding or maybe you didn't, maybe this new job promotion doesn't benefit you in any single way, but you also see that they are rejoicing and something naturally just wells up inside of you and so you say, I'll rejoice with them. And while that may not always be the case, I would argue that probably each and every one of us, if you're in Christ, that's been your natural response. And not only is it natural, but we've been commanded to do this. And it does come natural to us. Quickly, though, I want to address some things. Before we get to this question that's hanging in our minds, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's natural. So before we get to that, let's look at some biblical examples of this command. And so we looked at what is it? Now let's look at what does it look like? And so in addition to the account of Acts that we've already read, let's look at Philippians. And so turn in your, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I don't know if I can remember it, but I'll, I'll try. Gentiles eat pork chops. Is that right, Pastor Chris? Gentiles eat pork chops. So we're in the pork today. Philippians. In my, in my copy, the Black Bible, it's uh, 1164. 1164. To give you a little bit of background to the, to the church at Philippi and the letter that Paul writes to them. Uh, we, we did a sermon series not that long ago, just at the end of last year, kind of walking together through the book of Philippians. We, we did it briskly. Some of the things that we established in that study, I'm going to share with you really quickly here this morning. Paul had visited Philippi with the gospel several years prior to this letter being written and while he was there, it was an incredible time. I wish I could relay all of it to you because it's just, it's an incredible, it's a fascinating time to, to watch the Holy Spirit working in this pagan culture and just the gospel being poured out there. But at, at any rate, because of Paul's visit, we know this, a church was established. And by the point of, of this letter being written, we know that this fledgling church, there's been enough time and enough discipleship that it's not a fledgling church anymore. It's a healthy, growing church. One of the ways that we know that is the church has overseers and it has deacons. By the way, I'm glad that we are a healthy church as well with overseers and deacons. Praise God for our deacons. But we know that Paul is writing to the, to the overseers and the deacons and to the church at large. And we read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, he says, 
I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He goes on to say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Really, the reason Paul has written this letter, humanly speaking, is to thank the church at Philippi for their partnership with him in the gospel. They gave when Paul was in need. They bore the burdens of Paul, and not just the ministry expenses, but they gave to a person. They gave to a part of their body, as it were. They cared for him in his trouble. And so Paul writes this letter really to thank them, to celebrate what partnership they have enjoyed, the the bearing of burdens and to rejoice one with the other that God had met those needs through them and the gospel was continuing to bear fruit in Paul's imprisonment. Really, chapter four goes on to elaborate this, the idea of their fellowship and their partnership together. And Paul says, you've sacrificed to meet my need when nobody else was doing that and you did that joyfully. They were giving more than just, to just a cause. They're giving to Paul's need, a part of their body. And I'm going to argue this morning that the church at Philippi was doing that naturally. They did that naturally. The Holy Spirit in a supernatural way had changed them, given them new hearts, taken their hearts of stone and given them hearts of flesh. And now they naturally operated in the spirit of unity there in, in, in Philippi. The idea is Jesus had set them free from the law. Jesus had set them free even from serving themselves. He had set them free so that they could serve others, and they were doing that. Another reality, in Christ, the church at Philippi was one body. They were thinking, acting, and feeling as one, and when Paul was in need, they met that need. The scriptures tell us again that they were new Creatures and new creatures act in new ways. They act with unified hearts. They act, act quickened by the Spirit. They feel, felt the needs that Paul had, the burdens that he was bearing, and they bore those burdens with him naturally. It's a lot like praying with a sister who's lost one of her parents, it's bearing the burdens. It's kind of what they were doing. They were celebrating, in a sense, with a couple who, who had just closed on a very nice home. Maybe nicer than the one that, that you live in. They were buying packs of diapers for family members with new babies. They were bringing potato salad to a wedding reception for the newlyweds to celebrate with them. They were visiting an elderly brother or sister who just recently turned in their license and are bearing the burden of loneliness and isolation. They were correcting a brother who slipped into the snare of gossip or lust. They were doing so humbly. They were encouraging a sister who had forgotten her own identity in Jesus Christ. So they come alongside and they encourage and bear that burden and bring her to the place of rejoicing as much as is humanly possible. 
They were continuing to, to meet for discipleship on a regular basis, even though they weren't getting much out of it themselves. They bore the burdens of others. They were singing songs that really didn't do it for them personally. They were happily reviewing photos of someone else's vacation that they needed but the others got. They were sacrificially giving to a family with medical bills. This is what bearing the burdens of those around us look like. Practically speaking, in the 21st century here in Hagerstown, this is what it looks like to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And really, when you think about each of these, it's really easy to do, isn't it? Why? Because it's natural. If you're a Christian here this morning, the, the Holy Spirit has made you yourself a new creature. And together we're unified and we naturally do these things. So you might say, well, Pastor Josh, why does the covenant make such a big deal about such an easy task? This is really where the rubber meets the road this morning. You see, it's easy when it's easy. And it's so difficult when it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult for us to find the time or the tenacity to reach out and bear the burdens of others or even to rejoice with them in their happiness. I want you to think long and hard this morning. Why is that the case? Why is sometimes it difficult to bear the burdens of others? Why is it so difficult to rejoice sometimes with those who are rejoicing? Before we answer that question, I want to look at one more passage in Philippians really will help us to segue into answering this question, why can it be so difficult? So before we get there, let's look at one more text. Philippians chapter four, verses two and three. That's on page 1166 in the black book. The apostle Paul, having received some word about the state of the, 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 uh, the, 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 the social issues that are taking place there in Philippi, he says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche, I don't know if I, I'm just going to say that confidently. He entreats these two ladies to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of, the fellow, of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is addressing there at the, toward the end of his letter to this precious church. He gives us a little bit of insight as to what's taking place between these two men. We don't know much. Not much, but what's written here. We can kind of color it in and see that they used to enjoy a sense of unity and service together, but now they don't. Here we see that they're at odds with one another. They're not bearing the burdens of each other. They're not rejoicing together as they once had. You see, it was easy for these two women, and now it's not. So why can it be so difficult? This is the final passage, our final portion of our scripture, or our, our sermon this morning. I want to try to wrestle with this idea. Why can it be so difficult for us to fulfill this command sometimes? Well, I want you to consider the word picture that's been given to us in Galatians chapter 6. We've been commanded to bear the burdens of others. It's the same idea of carrying a large water jug, right? This morning, some of you brushed your teeth. You went into your bathroom and you turned your faucet on and you wet your brush and you 
brushed your teeth, maybe you splashed your face, maybe you helped a little one in your family do the same thing this morning. Well, in this day, in the Bible days, there's not a turning on a faucet. You had to go get a water jug, a large water jug sometimes. You had to go down to the well. You had to, 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 to draw the water out, fill that jug up, and bring it back to the house so everybody could brush their teeth and wash their face and do all the other things that require water. It's a burdensome task. And so picture a man or a woman carrying a, a large water pot full of water, carrying it on their shoulder, carrying it on their head. And you come alongside them and you say, allow me to, to bear that burden with you. That's the picture here. Or it's somebody struggling to carry a large log of, uh, maybe a, a, a log of, of lumber back to, to, the, to uh, their workspace and they're gonna use that log to create something, maybe a cross. As they go, they realize it's a little heavier than they thought. And so you, maybe, and your brother and maybe some of your uh, family members, you see that brother in need and you come alongside and you say, hey, this is a heavy burden for you. I'm gonna carry this with you. Or you see somebody having just received good news and you say, hey, you, you're, you're enjoying this all together by yourself. Let me, let me rejoice with you. And in, in a similar way, let me take your rejoicing, your happiness into my hands also like I would a water pot. So it's the picture of you coming alongside somebody else and adding your two hands or your shoulder to their shoulder or your two hands to theirs. Before we work to answer this question, I just want to make it really personal this morning. How have you been doing in this area? In the area of your arms and your hands being open free of your own personal concerns? How have you been doing in helping to bear the burdens of others? To carry their sorrows? How have you been doing in rejoicing with others who are rejoicing at this present moment and you have nothing to rejoice about? How are you doing? What is it that keeps you from holding in your hands the joys and the sorrows of those seated next to you. I don't know what it is. And perhaps you're doing a fantastic job. But if you're not, I would guess it has to do with one of three things. One of three things. And so if you're taking notes, here's three things that we can consider this morning that make it difficult for us to carry the burdens of others to hold in our hands, our own personal hands, the joys and sorrows of those around us. And the first one is self-interest. The first one is self-interest. Now they continue, these three, they're in menacing order, right? And in, in, in increasing uh, amount of, uh, of just evilness, right? This first one, self-interest, though it's not benign and it's no less dangerous, although it may appear to be. Self-interest sounds a lot like this. Well, I have my own burdens to carry. How, how can I carry the burdens of others? How can I rejoice with others when I have so many things to, to carry myself? My, my hands really are full. Or maybe self-interest looks like this. I, I just prefer to keep to myself. I'm kind of a loner in that way. Or I just don't see them that often. Our paths don't cross. And so it's tough for me to really carry their burdens and celebrate with them. Or maybe it's just, I don't have the time. Here's why it's such a challenge, self-interest. 
Here's why this gets in the way of us bearing the burdens of others, rejoicing with others. It's because it's impossible for us to see the burdens of others, let alone bear them if you're obsessed with your own. You can't bury the burden of others when your own hands are full. It just can't be done. Self-interest. We all have things that burden us. We all have things that we are working through, that we're rejoicing over. And yet at the same time, the scriptures teach us that we are not to only look to our own interest, but we're also to look at the interest of those and consider the interest of those around us as well. Our pattern for the next few minutes as we introduce one of these three challenges will be also to present a solution. And you'll know that the solution has nothing to do with my philosophy, my own personal example or wisdom, but it all will center on the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so what does Jesus say in regards to you and your own self-interest, you and your own burdens to carry? Well, in chapter two of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, mind you, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. What does that look like? What example has been set for us? Well, verse five, have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When we are self-absorbed and self-focused, we cannot see the needs of others, let alone help them to carry Jesus set aside his own interests. and He served the needs of his people. He left behind the joys of heaven, of which we are looking forward to. He left. He condescended. He took on flesh. He bore our shame. As Isaiah 53 read this morning for us to worship God and to say at the end, praise God, we see In Isaiah 53, Jesus bearing our burdens, bearing our grief and our shame. And so when we realize that in our own lives, we have been hindered from bearing the burdens of others and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, we look no farther than the cross of Christ and there we see Jesus bearing our burden, setting aside his own interests and looking to ours. In response to, I just don't have the time. Or I like to be alone. Jesus responds, I took the time for you. Christian, I drew near to you. I took on flesh for you. I served you. I set aside my own interests for you. When I think of Jesus, I see that Jesus himself was intentional. He was intentionally others-focused. We saw that in the gospel study of Mark, right? He came to serve and not to be served. Jesus was intentional. So again, just making it personal, where can you move away from thoughtlessness toward intentionality? Where in your life, practically speaking this morning, really pray that the Spirit of God would use this text, use this picture of Christ coming near to you to show you how that you, having received his nearness, can give it to someone else and thereby bear bear burdens. 
Where have you been thoughtless and now you can be intentional? Where have you been governed by self-interest and now you need to move to interest of others? I will say, intentionality is the key. I'm thankful for the example of Pastor Chris and his wife Amber, who I have it on good authority that they're blocking off Friday evenings to take brothers and sisters and neighbors that need Jesus to, to, to go eat, uh, have gospel conversations over ice cream, and I'm waiting for my invitation. But what I see in that picture is an intentional move, a, a thoughtful response to the gospel that has been given to them, and they're saying, now, Jesus has come near to, to me, and so I'll go near to my brother with, with ice cream. What a beautiful example, what a wonderful example Consider you, how can you move closer? How can you be intentional? How can you move from self-interest to interest of others? One example I would give you this morning, one thing I would offer you to consider is to use, to be intentional with your time in the prayer of the members of this church. So if you're a member of Hagerstown Church, you know that regularly uh, we, uh, we produce a document that is our directory that we hand out to the members of the church and we say, hey, these are who you've covenanted with. This is who has said, hey, I need you and, and you need me and we're coming together. To, we're, we're obeying the covenant together. We need prayer. We've, command, we've, been, we've promised that we would pray for each other. And so how can you be more intentional in the area of praying for your brothers and sisters? Oh, well, I would... There's lots of ways. You talk to myself or Pastor Chris. There's many others. Maybe your life group leader. They would help you to understand how you can use that document to to continue to bear the burdens of others. But self-interest gets in the way. But even more challenging and dangerous than self-interest is bitterness. Bitterness. It was only a matter of time before the honeymoon stage went away and the problems began. The church had been unified. They were focused on Jesus. They were looking to the cross of Christ. But then as humans tend, they sinned against one another. They hurt each other's feelings. They failed to keep their promises that they had made to each other. And it's no surprise that the unity was threatened. Why? Potentially because of bitterness. Shouldn't be any surprise to you that somebody in this church will sin against you likely this week. We can have confidence in many things, and one of them is that we will hurt each other. We'll sin against each other. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32 and following, say this, that we're to be kind. We're to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. One of the comforting things that I receive from Ephesians 4 is that in this command to forgive each other is the recognition that somebody's going to sin against me. And so when they do, I shouldn't be surprised. And yet I should be forgiving. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 say this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's the reality. You think about this picture of carrying this water pot with a brother or sister. Here's the truth. You can't hold their joy. You can't hold their sorrow. You can't bear their burden when your hands are full of their past failures towards you. You can't hold somebody's joy when you're holding their sins. 
There are folks in the directory that have sinned against you. Just a few weeks ago, our brother Brett encouraged us to take a moment of awkward silence and look around the room. I love that. I encourage that. Do it now. Go ahead. Somebody in here has failed you, let you down. You might be looking at him this way. Do you find yourself meditating on their sins? Do you find yourself meditating on their weaknesses? Oh, brother or sister, it's so challenging for us to hold their joy, to hold their sorrow when we're holding their sin. So what are we to do? Well, again, we look to the cross of Christ. We don't look to a man or we don't look to a woman. We look to the Son of God who set aside his comfort, set aside his interests. He came and he died so that we could be forgiven. And remember, the sins that we have committed, each of us, the many sins were not just against God the Father and Jesus bailed us out as an uninterested party. No, Jesus, you sinned against him. And he set those things aside, nailed it to his own cross. He forgave. And the command goes for us as well. At the heart of self-interest and even bitterness, though, is this last and most dangerous challenge that we face, and that's pride. Pride really is at the heart of self-interest. Pride is at the heart of bitterness. When I think of this idea of pride that gets in the way, I think of the quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity where he says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is a comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone as well. Here's the, here's the reality. It's really hard for me to be happy for somebody else when they have more than me, if my pride is in the way. It's really hard for me to, to think that someone doesn't deserve what they're getting and thereby think, hey, they should bear that burden on their own when my pride gets in the way. You see, it's difficult to celebrate with someone when your hands are empty and they are holding the thing that you desire or you're holding the thing that you don't want and their hands are empty and yet they're rejoicing. It's difficult to bear another's load when you think that they deserve what they're getting and you don't deserve it. My sinful pride, it desires that I encounter less difficulty than you while experiencing more pleasure than you. And as long as I have more joy and less discomfort than you, I'll be happy. This is my pride. This is what keeps me from bearing burdens and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And our pride really gets ramped up when we're experiencing pain while our neighbor is experiencing luxury. So how are we to be free from self-interest to which we drift? How are we to experience freedom from bitterness that ensnares us? How are we to be free from pride that overtakes us and causes us to be drunk? Well, we're to look to Jesus. We're to look to Jesus. We are to look to him and we are to remember what he has done for us. I won't read the passage, but in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, the story is told about a man who owed a debt. And that debt was enough to lock him up for a very long time. And yet, 
When the king discovered this man's debt and his great need and inability to pay, the king, because of his gracious nature and his love for this man, forgave him. He forgave him of a lot. And that man walks away, having been forgiven so much, even maybe rejoicing because his burden had been borne by someone other than himself. And yet, very quickly, he forgot of what he had been forgiven. He saw a man that had owed him, and in some sense, maybe sinned against him. And the debt that this second man owed was much less than the first. And yet, that first man, who had been forgiven so much, forgot what he had been forgiven of. And he grabs the lapels, he grabs the shirt of the second man that owed so little, and he begins to shake him. Brothers and sisters, it is difficult to shake the lapels of your servant while in the presence of your king. It's difficult to shake the lapels of those who have sinned against you when you're, when you're kneeling at the foot of the cross. When you're seeing what you've been forgiven of and how it's so great it is and so little it is that's been sinned and caused against you. It's difficult to grumble against the lesser sins of your neighbor when you're overwhelmed with the weight of your own sins. In contrast, it follows to carry the burden of others when your burden has itself been lifted. It's natural to respond with forgiveness when you realize all that you have been forgiven from. And it's easy to forget yourself when you gaze upon the true beauty of Jesus Christ and the cross that he bore. Often our response to others when we are commanded to bear burdens and to rejoice with those who are rejoicing is, I just don't have the time. I just don't see them that often. My hands are full. They don't really deserve it. I'm kind of better than them anyway. I deserve what they're getting. That's our response often. But Jesus' response, what was it? I took the time for you. I drew near to you, Christian. I cared for you. I forgave you. And with my life and with my death, I served you. When we find it difficult to celebrate with others, when we find it difficult to carry their burdens, remember this. If you hear nothing else, remember this. In a moment of intentional self-denial, Jesus humbly drew near me, his enemy. He bore my greatest burden, causing me to rejoice with him now as I will for all eternity. Think of that. In a moment of self-denial, intentional self-denial, Jesus humbly drew near us, church. We being his enemy, he bore our greatest burdens, causing us to rejoice with him now as we will for all eternity. And as our service comes to a close, we're gonna, we're gonna meet at the communion table because that's what this is all about. We're reminded this morning at the table that Jesus, having borne and extinguished our sorrows, now calls us to rejoice and we are reminded of that as we come to the Lord's table. And so brothers and sisters, together, we're gonna rejoice and we're going to be reminded together of what Jesus has done for us. This is a consecrated time at, at the Lord's table, and it's really it's for Christians. It's for Christians who have trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. And if that's not you here this morning, I want to ask you to, to not receive from the table. As the elements pass, let them pass. And consider the, the truths that we've talked about this morning. 
Wait until you come to faith in Christ so that you too, at a point in the hopeful future, can also receive from the Lord's table and be reminded, but doing so in full belief in what he, what he, does, what he has done and what this represents. And for those of you who are visiting with us, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're a member in good standing of a like-minded gospel preaching church, we invite you to join us this morning. Even if your church doesn't practice formal church membership, but you're a baptized Christian, you're committed to your local assembly of that gospel preaching church, then we invite you to, to partake. But Christian, if you're not walking in fellowship with brothers and sisters, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, I would ask that you abstain until you can freely come and receive from the table with a clear conscience. At the same time, I want to invite you to, those who would participate, to examine yourself and really to step into an honest conversation with the Lord about your sin and about others' sins against you. Now's the time to repent. Now's the time to ask for forgiveness, not just from God, but even from somebody in this room that you've sinned against or has sinned against you. We can repent now. We can see restoration now. We can stand up here in just a moment and go to a brother or sister and, and ask them to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus has saved us. Maybe there's some forgiveness that you need to seek from God or from somebody else in this room. Again, now is the time. At the same time, I want you to remember this, that we receive from this table freely. We're reminded of the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us, not because of anything that we had done to deserve it or to earn it, but because of his mercy. And so if you in any way, as a result of hearing something from this text or from the sermon, think that you've got to do something to earn Jesus's favor, nothing could be farther from the truth. This morning, the invitation is open to you to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus and receive that forgiveness. And so I want to invite you to take just a moment with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Some music will play and, and provide a space for you to truly reflect. Use this as an opportunity to celebrate what Jesus has done for you, Christian. But use this also as a time to prepare your heart to receive from him.